0: This episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Away Travel. Are you finally ready to leave your house after a year of being cooped up? Well, you're going to need some quality luggage, and Away has got you exactly what you need. They started with the perfect suitcase and then built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from the travel stories of the people they met along the way, their friends and their seatmates. And the pieces aren't just smart, they're thoughtful with features that solve real travel problems. And... They took the direct-to-consumer approach to lower prices and make sure that that quality is guaranteed. So you can get in Away Suitcase and know it's going to be with you for life. Find out for yourself. All you have to do is go to podgo.co slash away, P-O-D-G-O dot slash away, and get started on that first step to make your journey seamless. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I
1: just want you to know I hate you. So my
0: dad.
2: Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God she tell me a story. How do you sleep at
0: night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and roll bedtime stories exist to set straight rumor and innuendo. You've heard about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. My name is Brian and that's my buddy. I'm Murdoch. And who over here... Likes to hear rock and roll bedtime stories. (laughs) So uh, a friend of ours told me recently, um, uh, Charles, who's on the network, who hosts hypotheticals, said, you know, you guys are doing these bonus episodes of rock and roll bedtime stories. You should call those rock and roll nap time stories. Oh, I took a nap
1: the other day um, and it was so brutal. Whatever had happened to me, uh, this work COVID thing life that i fell asleep over and over again trying to finish an email on my phone (laughs) that it was like i'd open it up and it just let me eight cues like it's like oh no i'm gonna think that it's the lizard the laser people are gonna come get me and i fell asleep i don't like naps i feel like i come out of them worse
2: yeah
0: yeah i'm not a huge napper either the rest of my family all naps and so i tend to just get extra things done, right? It's like they get to go to sleep and then wake up and other new things are done uh, yeah. because I, I I don't do it often. But every once in a while, a good solid nap is good, and uh, I'm okay with that. But I, I don't think the creative direction of our bonus episodes is going to change to nap time stories. I, yeah. I, I don't know that I like the vibe we're putting off there, though it is clever wordplay. Um, if you want to get involved in the show, it's WeAreTheStoryGuys at gmail.com. Of course, our website is com. We have other podcasts up there that us and our friends and other people we know are a part of and we want you to uh, check all that stuff out but if you want to email the show we are the story guys at gmail.com and we do have some email Uh, this one's from tom tom reached out to the show and said hey guys i recently found rock and roll bedtime stories and i'm working through all the episodes i'm loving it lots of fun listening anyway do you guys know anything about meatloaf recording in a haunted house it's been a long time, but I remember hearing him talk about this in an interview at some point. Could you check it out for me? And I, I'm here to say, Tom, we're checking it out for you. This oh, is I'm your excited. Episode.
1: I, and and Tom and Brian, because uh, I'm I'm hoping Tom gets to hear this episode soon. I don't know anything about uh, except, uh, except Rocky this. Hart Picture Show. Rocky How about Hart? This? Yeah. yeah. And
0: So here's I'm, here's what I'm, I'm
1: confused by meatloaf. Well,
0: okay, <laughs> you're, you're going to learn a lot tonight. You're going to learn a lot. <laughs> and here's here's what I'm thinking. I actually want to approach this slightly differently than we normally approach these episodes. And that is that a lot of times we have a question at the center of the episode or we have, hey, buddy, I'm going to tell you this story and we're going to get to like the big meaty, juicy part. Since we know what Tom wants to know, I'm going to answer that straight up. And then we're going to go backwards into the history of meatloaf because I think it sheds some light on... This whole question of whether or not Meatloaf has hung out with ghosts, because as best as I can tell, and maybe Tom or someone else can it can prove me wrong. and again, the email address is "We are at gmail.com. Yes, Meatloaf is openly talking about having seen ghosts throughout his life, and he does have a story specifically about the recording of "Bat Out of Hell." But all of these stories seem to be like fairly recent in the meatloaf talking points like this doesn't seem to be like a thing that would happened even though he says it happened in the 70s that he was talking about in the 80s this seems to be a thing he started talking about in the last 10 or 15 years when the meatloaf machines probably needed a little juice because he keeps passing out on stage and being rushed to the hospital
1: yeah and he was doing like personal appearances like at like speaking things like he was doing speaking engagements at conferences and stuff. He was doing that for a while.
0: He's such an interesting guy. And and I have loved doing this research and learning a lot about him because I've always been aware of him. What's your, what's your entry point to me? Look, like, what do you think of? What do you remember from being a kid? I mean, anything, where, where does it start for you?
1: Um, Rocky horror picture show. Yep. Yep. We'll talk about that. And then, um, I, I guess, visually seeing him and knowing that there was a guy named meatloaf, but not knowing anything about his music at all. Kind of like, you know, the people are like that guy, man, I love that guy, Leonard Skinner. Right. 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 I I didn't even, I didn't even really understand whether meatloaf was a group or a band. No. And then once I, I saw him, I was confused because I didn't understand if he was supposed to be a sex symbol and then and then as I found out more about his music, I wasn't really sure whether he was supposed to be talented or whether it was kind of tongue in cheek, like this is kind of like Okay. All this the- is like Vaudeville. Like that's I didn't understand any of it. It's it was confusing to me for a long time.
0: So this is great, and we're gonna answer all those questions. And I it makes me feel better because I I, I kind of felt that way about him, but I was a decade or two later, right? So he like he's, he had a weird-shaped career, too, because he has kind of this breakout in the 70s, like early 70s, and then 20 years later, he has the biggest hit of his career. I'm 10 years old. I'm taping songs off the radio. The number one song for week after oh. week after week in 1993 on oh, 99.7 oh. uh, DJX is this. It's that awful... Ugh. This you song know. was a massive, massive hit. And I remember seeing the video and being so confused. Right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So so do you remember the video? Like he's disfigured and he has like a mask on and it's all strange. And there's this woman running through a mansion trying to find him. And this was a massive pop hit. I just want to take a moment and acknowledge how different pop radio has gotten over the last 30 years. Yeah. Because. And that was a hit. Then thirty years ago, this was on 99. Like I'm, I'm making a reference to a Louisville radio station, but it, on a, on basically the biggest top forty in in Louisville radio, this was the number one hit.
1: I mean,
0: this was playing next to "Again" by Janet Jackson. And, you know, Culture Beat, Mr. Vane. Like, this song was alongside all of that. And it's just I, the weirdest. Lo- I mean, it's long. It's over five minutes long. It's, yeah. And yeah. this is the single version. And it's got all of these th- these ebbs and flows and, and tempo changes. And it's just all crazy.
1: And you know what? I still think it's terrible. And there's probably like a half dozen Michael Bolton songs I like better than this. So... But- but I but it's but I remember like it was
0: a popular you know, it's it, like it's huge. And people still I mean I still hear people make jokes where they'll say, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Like, I mean, it has right. made itself, it's made its way into the, the pop cultural lexicon.
1: Yeah, yeah. It,
0: it's just it's a joke. It's, it's, <laughs> it's all super weird. And I think once we do this reclamation project on Meatloaf's career here in a minute, you're going to understand it a lot better. So I, I, I have a much better understanding having done some research on him. so we're going to get there. But I want to talk about the ghost thing first for Tom. So right, he- here, here's what I know about the ghost thing. We're going to answer the question about the haunted house ghost stuff. This comes from an interview with Larry King that happened uh, in 2014. So seven years ago, he's he's doing rapid fire Facebook questions with Larry King. Larry King is reading things from the listener lines, and he asks him this.
2: John Davis on Facebook said, I saw an episode of Sci-Fi Channel's Ghost Hunters where you went on an investigation. What interests you about the paranormal? Well, I I actually saw a ghost. uh, Oh, I've seen several now. Um, Because we were talking about Bon Jovi a second ago. But I saw a ghost when we were shooting, uh, when we were uh, recording Banner of Hell. And it looked like a real person. It just like if somebody came across this room, you walked across, you would go, there's a person walking across. And she walked across the balcony. She was in white. She was a blonde teenager. And I went downstairs. I said, one of the Todd Rowling's groupies down there. And they go, well, how'd you get up there? And I go, well, I don't know. Came up the back stairs. And they said, there's no back stairs. I said, well, there's a girl up there. Everybody went up there. There's nobody up so, there. So you question it. And then, then I was at a hotel in London called The Landmark. Oh, about 6.30 in the morning, I, I woke up, I kind of rolled over, and there was kind of a, a guy passing through the room, and I, I said something to him, but he didn't acknowledge me, which means he wasn't an intelligent haunting. And then, we were talking about John, John had said to me, uh, Bon Jovi, he had checked into this hotel in Scotland, and he, the whole band checked out in the middle of the night. So when I found that out, <laughs> I went to that hotel. They saw ghosts. I guess they saw something. So I said, "I want John Bon Jovi's room when he was here." So I went up there. I got nothing. <laughs> I was really disappointed.
0: So th- that's what he tells Larry King. And this well, is in what t- a, 2014. What a, what a what an
1: interesting long descriptive thing there's a there's a guy who's a theoretical physicist his last name's kaku and i read his book called hyperspace and he he theorizes i mean i think theoretical physicists must have an awesome time it sounds to me like they just take bong hits and just make <laughs> up stuff right because it doesn't it actually doesn't exist it's theoretical physicists. theoretical it's yeah. Just, yeah but the idea was that there's we live in a like this multidimensional universe sure. and our dimensional, sure. our, our universe has four dimensions yeah. and we can't see four. but we can't see all of it. And, and from that fourth dimension or where that's where electromagnetism and, and apparitions and things come from. And then we're just attached to this other universe that has all this other stuff right, that, com- right. that comes. But um, so I always wonder kind of like dogs or children, if there's certain people that really can see That that aren't the people that they're like the cat lady on the Simpsons, like people that actually have some sort of thing where they can see. I mean,
0: so I've gotten conversations on podcasts before about, you know, belief in supernatural belief in religion, belief in God, belief in all these things. Right. And, And the only answer I can really give is like there is definitely a part of me that wants to live in a world where magic exists. Right. In some degree. And I don't know what that is and how you define that. Right. It might be spiritual. It might just be crazy things happening. It might be being able to see ghosts. And having people get stuck, you know, outside of the afterlife or whatever. But I want to believe that at least some of that maybe exists. But I don't think – here's my thing about meatloaf. Uh, let, me, let me show you the different things I found, and then we're going to piece together my narrative of what I think is happening here, okay? So this okay. is 2014, and you notice he mentions ghost hunters, okay? So – I started looking around to see if I could find episodes of Ghost Hunters that he was on, and what I found instead were a lot of video blogs he's been putting on YouTube that are about 40 seconds apiece where he talks about the fact that he's about to hang out with the guys from Ghost Hunters, where he's just like talking to his camera, which is very entertaining. At one point, he says... Me and the guys from Ghost Hunters just rode go karts, and now I'm back at the hotel, and they've got the footage from today. So there's this thing over like he's and he's doing all this with his wife, Deborah. So like they, I think they've been married for quite a bit. We'll look at this when we get into the story, but it's really funny because she's going on all these Ghost Hunter trips, and that's clearly part of the story. But he's been on Ghost Hunters several times, and I found this video which is taken on someone's cell phone at a Q and A with the cast of Ghost Hunters. Okay, and, all right, and this is. This is an amazing clip. It's from 2009. So that Larry King clip is from 2014. So this is from five years before that, and this is the Ghost okay. Hunters talking about their relationship with Meatloaf. How did you meet Meatloaf?
1: Meatloaf had contacted his agent about wanting to get on the show because he's, he's a real diehard fan. He knows every single episode, and him and his wife, Deb... And I guess his agent just wasn't doing it, so Meat took it upon himself to start emailing like, the national website with emails saying, you know, this is Meatloaf. Yes, it's Meatloaf. And, uh, you know, but honestly, probably the nicest guy. Wouldn't, wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah. I mean, it's the guy that,
0: he, he's like your father, you know. I mean, he took us, He took, you know, this will make us sound like kids, but he took us all out go-karting. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know? And- so they go on to tell stories about him actually being, and we 'll put this in the show notes if you want to watch the whole thing because it goes on for another uh, couple of minutes and and they t- each kind of go around and tell a quick story about him and there 's one about him running in front of them when they 're going to a site that they 're about to walk into with all their equipment, and he gets so excited like a little kid he runs it, and he ends up falling over and hurting himself, and they <laughs> oh, have to no. pull him out of the of the situation so There's clearly this love and affection between the the Ghost Hunters crew. He seeks them out. Like, they don't look for him. He keeps bugging them to please let me be on the show. He's on several episodes of the show. And so the timeline here, like I said, the last 10 to 15 years or so is when this has really emerged with him. So then in 2016, and I cannot find the full episode of this, but there – okay, let's just pause for a second and talk about the fact that I did not know this cultural artifact existed. Did you know that there's a show on the Lifetime Network called The Haunting Of? Have you ever heard of this? No, no. Okay. No, no. You really need to go on YouTube and just type in The Haunting Of and look at episode lists. Because the people who have appeared on this show, quite incredible. And I, I, we may have to revisit it at some point because there is an episode with Vince Neal. <laughs> And I have no oh, idea I have yes. no idea what that's going to be like. But the premise of this show is there's basically like, remember the Long Island medium? You remember that lady? Yeah. Man. So there's basically, sure. there's basically like a version of her that finds ghosts. And I could, I, I don't know. She has this show. You can go find her. She is the host of this show and she is the intermediary. So she will take a celebrity who has said that they have seen a ghost at some point or needs money. And, They say yes, and they go to the site, and then she tries to find the ghost with them. And so there are clips, though I cannot find the full episode, of the episode that Meatloaf did in 2016, The Haunting of Meatloaf. Meatloaf's Lights Out.
1: Yeah, there's definitely Vince Neil. Oh, The Haunting of T-Pain?
0: Oh my god, does he talk like T-Pain the whole time? The cast list is insane. If you look at the people who... Giancarlo Esposito from Breaking Bad...
1: Sally Struthers,
0: Michael Rappaport, uh Kendra from, you know, Hugh Hefner's mansion, like it it's just super bizarre. The amount of people who have done this and some of them are like fairly Eric, famous, like not just Eric, B-list.
1: Hall of Fame NFL player Eric Dickerson, Tom Green, Holy yeah. cow! It's, I'm gonna stay up all night, drink and watch some <laughs> these YouTube.
0: Ernie Hudson. You know Ernie they Hudson. were really excited when they got a Ghostbuster to do that show. So, <laughs> oh my god, that's right. I I, I, I don't want to be too. Uh, I don't want to spend right, gotta, too much time on this because we could really get down a wormhole. But that is a show that exists, and it's ridiculous. And Meatloaf did, did a, an episode of that show too. So he has. Here's my thing. Here's what my short answer to Tom. Yes, Meatloaf says he saw a ghost in the man- in the in the house slash recording studio. They recorded "Bat Out of Hell" in, and we'll get into the history of "Bat Out of Hell" in a second. I' I'm not going to say the guy's lying. I think here is my theory. I think he got bored and really into ghost hunters about twelve to fifteen years ago, and. During that time he started to fashion his own mythology and maybe thought about a few things that had happened to him and has I mean, you're gonna learn he is a theatrical guy. That is the if yeah. you if you just had to describe meatloaf in one word, theatrical is the word I would use. And I think he has woven this in to low level paychecks. Like he just is—he's you know, hey, for for ten years I can float on being on reality TV talking about ghosts. Like it's not a bad move for a guy who has always been into theater and who I will find the quote later about how he says he's never really been him. He's always been a character. Right now he's in he's in a he's in Meatloaf the Ghost Hunter character mode, and he has been for about a decade. And, and so whether or not he saw a ghost during Bed Out of Hell and what that added to the recording of Bed Out of Hell, I don't know. But we're about to go on a trip. Back to the beginning with Meatloaf. And regardless of whether or not he's seen ghosts, this is a pretty entertaining ride.
1: I can't wait. And is it going to – when I think of Meatloaf, visually all the time in my head, if you said Meatloaf, the encyclopedia in my head has big guy in the Jerry Seinfeld pup, puffy arm sleeve <laughs> shirt.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean Meatloaf is always been a big guy. That's part of the story is that he and is just- – Huffy Sleeves. He's just always been a big dude. And uh, we'll talk about that as well. Let's listen to "A Bat Out of Hell, though.
1: You come from miss these tunes. He write his own music.
0: You know it's like we plan these things you totally set it up does he write his own music y- y- you can't talk about meatloaf without talking about another guy another guy who has been more behind the scenes for his career named jim Steinem. and anybody that knows anything about meatloaf knows about jim because jim is the guy who's making all the magic happen meatloaf is the front man yeah okay but Jim is the guy who's making this insanity happen, both on the record and on stage. I feel like I'm at a fish concert, and I'm in hell. <laughs> so here, here is really the quick notes. You have to understand that Meatloaf. and this is going to pull everything into place for you, all your questions... The best understanding of Meatloaf is understanding that he is a theater kid. Yeah. Okay. So it's always been about theater for Meatloaf. That's where he got his start. And when he met Jim Steinem in the early 70s, they had this plan to basically make like this musical together. And that is what Bad Out of Hell is. Oh. So Bad Out of Hell okay. is basically a musical. So the plan was to make it an album, but it was always under the the... the under the umbrella of these are theater musical guys, you mentioned Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know he played two parts on stage yes. in Rocky Horror Picture Show. So in in not in the movie, in the movie he only plays one part, but in the um in the actual uh Broadway play or on the, the, the play, he plays two parts. And he was doing things like that. Um a, that was how, how he got started. Um let's go back to the very beginning. Do you want to know? where he got the, the, the nickname. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause it's like, if they were to me, it's like, okay, this is like the idea that like it was going to be a musical. I, I kind of get that now. Yeah. Because for yeah, think- me, it's like the, the whole, this whole genre to me is just something that's, it's just a little alien. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It's just whatever, a uh, you know, objective opinion or whatever. Um, but yeah, why would they name it something like that? I just don't understand. So go ahead. So it's so his, his nickname, his, right?
0: Yeah, his name is is Marvin Lee a day. Um, but he from a very young age was called Meatloaf, at least from middle school, because he was huge. He's always been a big dude. In the fifth grade, he weighed one hundred eighty five pounds. He was two hundred and forty pounds by seventh grade. Oh my gosh! And I he, weigh less than Meatloaf in eighth grade. He he <laughs> had he had a terrible uh, uh, childhood. His dad was an alcoholic. Um, his mom was a school teacher, but also, as a, as it's put in a lot of interviews and writing about him, he, she also had the unen- unenviable job of driving, quote, from bar to bar with Meatloaf in toes, searching for Meatloaf's uh, dad.
1: Ugh, um, yeah,
0: She died I'm, of cancer yeah. in 66, and Meatloaf I mean, it's said he's he said in interviews and such that, um, uh, at you know, like he made a scene at the funeral, he grabbed her body and screamed at the undertakers, You can't take her from me! Like, just like, you know, oh my god, he's been very intense and dramatic from a very early age. Now, the story is that after the funeral, he and the dad get in a fight, the dad, an alcoholic, angry. Wife is dead, who's obviously been taking care of him and, and enabling him for a long time. He bursts into Meatloaf's room with a butcher knife. And, oh. he, yeah, basically had to fight his dad. Now, again, take everything here and remember that Meatloaf has built a an entire story around himself, right? Like armor. And as you'll wow. see, as I'll point out, he sometimes points to the fact that he's – not that he's lying, because I don't think he's necessarily lying, but that – that he is a storyteller. So some of these things sound very much like they are ripped from a, you know, God forbid that this actually happened to him. And if it did, God bless him. But you know, these, these are very theatrical stories that he tells about fighting for his life, quote unquote, with his dad, breaking his father's nose and his ribs, and then leaving Texas and going to LA to do musical theater, to just get away from, you know, the things that had plagued him in his childhood home. So crazy, crazy stuff. Um, But wow. Yeah.
1: So interesting too.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, so amazing. Here's what I'm talking about. There's a quote as recent as 2016 where he says on any record I've ever done, you've never heard meatloaf sing a song. They've all been characters quote unquote. So there's some really interesting, um, things he said over the time. According to him, even as a high school shot put thrower, he competed "quote unquote in character." And the character that he wasn't in, in the high school track and field field is what helped him throw farther. So he's he's always built this idea of being larger than life, which I'm sure, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm sure a psychologist would say it's a coping mechanism, right? Um, he's Yeah,
1: I was going I was going to say Brian it doesn't sound like you've been to therapy as much as I have.
0: <laughs> uh yeah, it's called trauma. Well, yeah. Uh, and and he, yeah. so he's been pressed on when he was born several times and the birth date has changed his the oh. year the year he's born has not by not dramatically. Um sometimes he says 1947, sometimes he says 1951. Um I always love that though.
1: Yeah. I love it when people I love it when people are are coy about real specific you know, it's like, I'm from parts unknown, New Mexico, you know, and it's like you look and it's like there really is a place called parts unknown. And then they're really not from parts unknown. <laughs> I love I love I love I love that about the mythology that people create about themselves.
0: Well, he's even said things recently about how good he is at fantasy sports. Um, the The Washington Post at one point wrote Meatloaf is either the world's greatest fantasy football player or a lying liar. <laughs> that was in WAPO, so take that for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, so, right. but I mean, he also tells a story about when he was in high school that a shot put champion launched a 12-pound shot 62 feet and hit him in the head and dented his skull. And he says, it didn't even knock me out. Weird. No. Right. I mean, some of these things, no way. He also says before getting part of his cranium caved in, he apparently couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. And then afterwards he suddenly had a three and a half octave vocal range. (laughs) If you watch interviews with him, you see this. So it's still in his eyes. If you go watch and we'll put it in the show notes, um, this interview with Larry King, you can see as he's answering these rapid fire questions that it's all, uh, it's all a show. And, and, again, I'm not critic- – I mean, I am kind of criticizing it, but I, I, I'm more just pointing out – I'm not saying he's – like, I get it. Like, you you are. You're larger than life. You literally have gone by the name Meatloaf for your entire adult life and full career. Um, I understand that you're playing a character, but it's – he reminds me of those – like, we have all know those guys who used to, like, when we would do radio – back when we were in radio, we would do um, live broadcasts, and there would always be that one guy that would stay at the tent and start telling you yeah. stories about the last time he saw Skinnerd, Right. And right. you'd be like, dude, when is this guy going to leave? He reminds me of one yeah. of those guys who just, right. everything kind of worked out for. And he was on the other side of the stage. He was on the stage instead of standing outside telling stories about being on the stage.
1: Yeah. And, and like, he, there's definitely a difference between a character like him and where, let's use the word character. Right. Um, versus a very like manufactured character, like, like the members of Kiss, who they, they made, you know, they made cartoon characters out of them. And
0: right. And that's, that was book a stuff. From from the yeah. very beginning, that was a play, right? They, their whole premise was we are creating, we are playing characters. We are cartoon characters come to life. Milo is passing it off a little bit more. Yeah. And it's because of this bleed over from being a theater guy who was in, I mean, come on, the one of the campiest camp musicals of all time, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. So,
1: Which I've seen enough.
0: There is a, a relation here to another episode of the show, uh, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. If you have not, um, flip back in the archives, and there is one about Debbie Harry and a story she has about uh, an encounter with Ted Bundy. And then there's yeah. also a. Um, so So this is, you know, famous serial killer rock and roll kind of coming together. Now, there's. One of our, our most popular, most requested episodes is uh, the one about the Beach Boys and Charlie Manson. Yeah. Meat has a Charlie Manson story. And I want to hear this. <laughs> uh, so, these it's unbelievable. Um, he claims that he picked up Charlie Manson when he, Charlie Manson was hitchhiking. This is in his autobiography. So, And, and that, of course, is called To Hell and Peck. Um, he claims he spotted him on sunset Boulevard. Didn't realize who he was. And this totally ties into our episode too. And I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite episodes too. I think just the whole story about the Dennis Wilson and the beach boys and Charles Manson, um, Manson mentioned the beach boys when he's in meatloaf's car and asked Meat if he wanted to meet them. So he says they drove to Dennis Wilson's house Mm. Where they were greeted by zero beach boys.
1: <laughs> oh, and if they weren't there.
0: Well, okay. And this, this fits with our research from that other episode. Remember? Right. Right. Be- yeah. Yeah. There was the a house. There's a certain point where Dennis Wilson abandons the house that he's been renting because he doesn't know how to get Charles Manson to leave. Yeah. And that's right. a documented real thing that happened. So. I mean, of course, Meat could have read that somewhere and just incorporated this into his personal mythology. Here's one that goes back even farther when we're talking about the tall tales that Meatloaf tells. He claims he was at the JFK assassination. (laughs) Have you heard this story?
1: With Ted Cruz. No, I haven't heard this one. I'm
0: ready. (laughs) He claims he was the Zodiac Killer. No. Um, So he says that... He told Howard Stern this. 2006, he's on The Howard Stern Show. And he claims... Baba that after the JFK assassination, he and his friends got pulled over by Secret Service agents who commandeered Meatloaf's car so they could quote drive to the hospital. Baba booey. Yeah, right. He said he and his friends remained in the vehicle until President Kennedy's body arrived at the hospital two hours later. Now insane. So that's that's Howard Stern, but in the book, like a bat out of hell, which is not the to hell back autobiography this is a different book okay. a writer named mick wall wrote it and he says that um he had a conversation where meatloaf told him that he and his friends drove to the hospital on their own and someone with a badge halted them as they neared the emergency room ah. there they supposedly saw jackie kennedy still dressed in her quote blood spattered pink suit emerging from a limo wow so choose whichever story you want and and i know and i i was i had to look up
1: i know who uh mick wall is um i'm just super familiar oh yeah 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 he was a writer for kerrang magazine yeah there you go that's yeah yeah totally because i um so yeah do you know what do you know how i know who you know how
0: i know who that guy is brian did he write the story about Nikki six
1: no, Axel drops his name and get in the ring on Use Your Illusion 2. He's one of the guys, the journalist who he's he like goes, Mick Wolf of Kerrang. He likes,
0: that's how I know who Mick Wall is. Hey, just a quick intermission between sets on Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories here to remind you that the show is brought to you today by Away Travel. You are looking to get out of your house finally and you're going to need a suitcase for it. And they have got exactly what you need. The perfect suitcase. They took the direct consumer approach. They're keeping their prices low and their quality high. And you can feel confident that when you get an Away suitcase, it's going to be with you for life. Don't just listen to me, though. Find out for yourself. Go over to apodgo.co slash away, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash away to get started and let Away Travel make your journey seamless. Now, back to the show. So let's let's stick with this for a second. Let's talk about rock and roll journalists and personalities who we love and whose work we love. I mean, at this point, we have to put the law and friend book in the like Hall of Fame that if you listen to rock and roll bedtime stories, you have to read this book because we reference it so much. But do you remember in that book um, that is a sacred text of the rock and roll bedtime stories crowd? There is a story about when Lon was in high school and he gets a job on Todd Rundgren's tour selling yes, merch. Yeah. Do you remember this story? Yeah, yeah I remember that's yeah. And he's like, this is when I realized that where the merch like road crews stay at night and where the artist stays at night are two very different hotels.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're di- yeah, right?
0: <laughs> so, I bring that up only to say that was the first thing I thought of when I I learned that Todd Rundgren was very involved an early meatloaf. Huh? Yeah. So there's some great pictures. Um, and we'll, uh, put them in the show notes of Todd in the studio working on, um, at the mixing desk doing this stuff. Right. Um, one of the most mind blowing moments in my life, meatloaf said, quote, was watching Todd Rundgren play guitar and do stuff in one take. um, one take only. In fifteen minutes, he played the lead solo, and then went back and did the harmony guitars at the beginning. The whole thing didn't take him more than forty-five minutes. Todd mixed the record in one night, started at six o'clock, and finished at four o'clock in the morning. So, wow, yeah. Todd, I mean Todd Rundgren's a guy that we could spend lots of episodes on. There's there's a lot uh, to talk about there. But one of the things that I think we need to do really quickly, we we've established that Meatloaf tells a lot of tall tales, but I've already teased the fact that we really need to be talking about the other person in Meatloaf's life that made a lot of this happen. And as I said, that guy's name is Jim Steinem. So as most rock and roll partnerships go, very um, there's been a lot of lawsuits. <laughs> there's been a lot of stress on that relationship. Bummer. Um, one of the my favorite things about it, though, that relationship or or actually just about this whole situation is that Jim Steinem has his own website where he just posts articles and stuff still. And it's like clearly was created 25 years ago. Like when websites were a thing that people were getting, but it's it's still out there. And so you can find all of this stuff at, um, uh, Jim It's that simple. S T E I N M A N com and on there he has this article. Oh my god! This
1: website is ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's
0: unbelievable. And so uh, I, I can't believe the internet, like internet browsers, still support it. It's so out of date. But he has all these articles archived, and there's a great one from Classic Rock Magazine, September of 2000, so t- over 20 years ago, called "To Hell and Back," and it is an interview with mostly with Jim where he really tells the story about Bat Out of Hell from his perspective. So if you've read a lot of other stuff, as I have, about Bat Out of Hell from Meat's perspective, this is just interesting. And also, Classic Rock Magazine, I don't think was like a widely distributed magazine, because this guy's not a very good writer. All respect to John Houghton, the guy who wrote this article. Um, It's very like like Lester bangs in the seventies, like trying to be all like hip and in the scene. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there I am smoking a cigarette. Um, but it's, there are amazing quotes like this one. Uh, meat was the most mesmerizing thing I'd ever seen. Remembers Steinman. He was much bigger than he is now. He was Mm -hmm. effing huge. And since I grew up with Wagner, like Richard Wagner, the composer, all my heroes are larger than life. His eyes went into his head like he was transfixed. At the audition, because it's talking about when they met at this audition, he's saying, you got to give your heart to Jesus. I can seem arrogant at times because I'm certain of things, and I was certain of meatloaf and meatloaf. So then there's like this back and forth like oral history thing happening in this article. When I first met Jim, he was sharing an apartment on 102nd Street with I don't know how many people. His bed was in the kitchen. Its headboard was the refrigerator. And I said, "Jim, if anyone wants something from the refrigerator." And he said, "Believe me, no one does." So like just huh. those those two quotes like totally tell you everything you need to know about those two guys, right? Like there's yeah. just like meatloaf co- immediately turns it into, "Well, let me tell you about this time that when I met Jim." right? Jim's talking about the music and meatloaf is talking about the story that they're creating together. Um, so I mean, there is a lot to dig into as you get into these articles and start to read about meatloaf. And I mean, there's also amazing pictures that are the most 1970s things you've ever seen with these dudes in their long hair. Um, but it's, it's just so interesting. Uh, the whole story is so interesting. And Jim is just the whole time, very concerned about the musical side of this. Um, I never really saw classical music and rock and roll as different. I still don't. I grew up liking extremes in music, big Gothic textures. I never have much regard for more subtle stuff. Dire Straits may be good, but they just don't do it for me. I was attracted to William Blake. I couldn't see the point in writing songs about ordinary real life stuff. So right there, I've just explained all the questions you had at the beginning of this podcast about those songs.
1: Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. All right.
0: So there's this guy behind the scenes who is basically building these rock and roll musicals because they, they, and he's not thinking of them as rock and roll. He's thinking of them as entertainment and as as, as probably as more grandiose even than that. Yeah. Right? Um, right. But here's how it really happens. Meatloaf goes to L.A. He ends up starting a band called Meatloaf Soul after that nickname that he got in middle school. Uh, depending on the interview, sometimes he says it was his football coach. Um, he immediately got recording contracts and he turns them all down. First gig, Huntington Beach, 1968. Guess who he's opening for?
1: Uh, 68. Hunting- Led Zeppelin.
0: No, no, no. Not, not quite that insane, but this is pretty good them? No. Oh, well, Van Morrison. Okay. Yeah. Uh and Question Mark and the Mysterians. Uh do you know I met him?
1: <laughs> no. I met, really? I, I met Question Mark. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it was like meeting Wesley Willis but not like that. But it was it was like meeting it was meeting a an unbelievably unusual person who really was question like that was sort of the you know i'm the question mark yeah anyway
0: yeah really like if if that is how you're going to identify yourself what do you expect yeah so here at this first show he's playing with them and with question mark and they decide to cover Helen wolf song smokestack lightning and they're like we really have to make an impact on these folks that are at huntington beach so they get this smoke machine going And they got the smoke machine going so hard that it made too much smoke and they had to clear the club out. (laughs) There had to be an evacuation. Oh, my gosh. Ah That's (laughs) funny. Later they go on. They open for Janis Joplin at one point. Um, And then they start changing their names. Popcorn Blizzard and Floating Circus. Um, As Floating Circus, they open for the Who. Uh, They open for the MC5 at one point. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so all of this is happening. He's already turned down recording contracts. And then he's he gets a job at the in the LA production of Hair. Oh, uh, well that seems to make great sense. That's awesome. Okay. Again, don't you feel like all of the questions you had at the beginning of this show are coming together?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. Uh, yeah, it it is for me. And and it has to be like I guess the music kind of kept me from getting diving in any deeper into Meatloaf than I wanted to, but I'm starting to understand a lot more about... Sure. You either
0: like that theatrical thing or you don't, you know? But, I mean, it is stated over and over when you read about Meatloaf that he's always said his biggest struggle in life was overcome, was that he had to overcome not being taken seriously, like in the music industry. <laughs> so, yeah. with the publicity generated from Hare, he gets an invite to record with Motown. (laughs) They suggest he duets with Sean Stoney Murphy, who was also with him in hair.
1: Okay. So
0: the Motown production team in charge of the album wrote and selected songs while Meatloaf and Stoney came in and just like do vocals. The album titled Stoney and Meatloaf with Meatloaf as one word, you will notice that in the title of this podcast, it is two words. That's how he likes to do it. It was completed in 71 and released in September. And a single released in advance of the album was called What You See Is What You Get. And it went to 36 on best-selling soul singles chart, which is now the hip, That's now the R&B hip-hop chart. And uh, it was 71 on the Hot 100. So to support this album, Meatloaf and Stoney tour with Jake Wade and the Soul Searchers and open for Richie Havens, The Who, The Stooges, Bob Seger, Alice Cooper, and Rare Earth.
1: Wow all right
0: meatloaf left soon after motown replaced his and stoney's vocals from the one song he liked and gave it to edwin Starr instead
2: <laughs> Man.
0: do you know that song who is the leader of the people that was ori- um, that was originally a uh meatloaf and stoney song oh,
1: how weird is all those things okay
0: I mean, you know, this comes up over and over, and if we really spent a lot of times in the the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, and 70s on this show more, we would get into this, right? These, like, record label maneuvers. Not that they didn't happen later. They definitely did. But some of these, like, just blatant crazy things where they're like, actually, we're going to take your voice off, we're going to put somebody else's voice on, and then we're just going to say it's you, or whatever. And that, you know, that's the girl group thing, right? It didn't matter who was actually singing. Um. So then, in seventy, so he's kind of got this thing happening at the same time, which which is like theater and trying to play rock and roll, and you know it's a little bit of a forerunner in this, right? Like we don't see this a ton until later when people are kind of have one toe in the entertainment industry with with TV or cinema or whatever, and they're also trying to do music at the same time, kind of see what takes off first, um, and then maybe they're if they're good, they're able to do both, and maybe they're not. You know, there's just been a few cases where that's really worked, but. At the same time, he's like getting gigs, doing theater. So he does an off-Broadway production of Rainbow at the Orpheum Theater in New York, and then he ends up rejoining the cast of Hair and going to Broadway. So he's done Broadway in L.A. Now he does Broadway, or he does Hair in L.A., and then he does Hair on Broadway in New York. And he hires an agent, um, and this agent gives him this audition, gets him this audition for a play called More Than You Deserve at the public theater. And during this audition, he meets Jim Steinman. Um, and this is where the quote I read earlier from Jim, where he talks about, man, he came in and he sang this crazy song and it was insane. And I knew at that minute that we had to collaborate and we were going to be the team. Um, This is that moment. He sings this song that was a Stoney and Meatloaf song called I'd Love to Be as Heavy as Jesus. (laughs) So he gets the part in the play. um, And then he ends up recording um, a couple of things. uh, And in late 73 he gets cast in the original LA Roxy cast of the Rocky Horror Show. So this is where he kind of enters your consciousness, right? Um, he plays the two parts in the LA play. Um, and then, and, and other people from that production of more than you deserve that he was in come to this production. And this, because it's such a huge success, they end up making a movie out of it. Meatloaf is in there, but he only gets to play Eddie. He doesn't get to play Dr. Everett Scott in the movie. Um, And he has said, because he's Meatloaf and he's very proud of himself, that him not getting to play both parts in the movie is why the movie's not as good as the musical. (laughs) And this is the time where Meatloaf and Steinman start working on Bad Out of Hell. Meatloaf convinces Epic Records to shoot videos for four songs. So this is 72, 74? (laughs) Yeah. And, And he gets Epic Records to shoot videos? Like, this is crazy, right? Like, this is 10 years before MTV. He convinces Lou Adler, who, I don't know if you know, I mean, I know you know the name, but you know you realize that Lou Adler produced Rocky Horror. Um, Yeah. He convinces him, listen, here's what I want you to do. When this movie comes out, run the video to Paradise by the Dashboard Light as the trailer to the movie. So... You, you may not even realize how intricately his musical career and his time in Rocky Horror Picture Show are connected. So Meatloaf's final theatrical show in New York was uh, a Hamlet musical. It closes after a two-week run. And then he occasionally comes back. But after that, he's really mostly making music. Um, here's one fun fact about Meatloaf that I didn't know. Okay. Did, did you know... That in 1976, he recorded lead vocals for Ted Nugent's album Free For All?
1: No, no. So I, I didn't know about his whole appearing anywhere on anything.
0: Derek St. Holmes was the lead singer of the Nugent band. I didn't know any of this. And he temporarily quits the band in the late 70s, and they've got an album to make. So on five of the nine tracks, uh Meat Loaf is singing lead on that Ted Nugent record.
1: <laughs> i guess i don't even think about ted nugent having a different singer
0: yeah i mean I, I didn't either like i didn't know i was waiting for you to be like well yeah of course there's like yeah i had no idea no that, clue that there yeah. was like a singer in the, and this goes back to your thing right is meatloaf a person or a band is leonard Skinner a person or a band is ted nugent yeah. a person or a band i don't yeah. know um is ted Nugent ted nugent a, a band or a, or is he
1: leonard Skinner? Like, I don't, like, I always, I guess I forgot and always thought he probably sang the songs.
0: Yeah, I know. Me too. Meatloaf and Steinman start Bad Outta Hell in 1972, but they don't get serious about it until 74. Meatloaf decides to leave theater and just do music after all this happens with Rocky Horror. And he makes this declaration, and you can tell just like he's so, like anything you see, right, he's just so... There's so much vibrato to everything he does. Oh, I'm quitting. And then the National Lampoon Show Lemmings opens on Broadway and they don't have an understudy for Belushi. Oh. And Belushi and Meatloaf have been hanging out for the last couple of years. They're buddies. And well,
1: that, so. That says something.
0: Yeah. So at the Lampoon Show, and here's why I'm telling you this at the Lampoon Show, Meatloaf meets Ellen Foley. Ellen Foley is the voice of. That you hear on Paradise by the Dashboard Light and Bad Out of Hell. That's, oh, that's the female. Okay. And okay. so now I'm gonna I'm gonna get us to run grid and then we'll we'll take it home. Because we could we could do multiple episodes on the career of Meatloaf, but I think we've we've really talked about the things that matter here. After the Lampoon show ended, Meatloaf and Steinman spent time seeking a record deal. And they keep getting told no because the songs are weird. <laughs> I mean, you, this is what we've talked about, right? Like, you're yeah. listening to it going, I don't know what this is, right? And this is this is what's happening. Everyone's basically like, we understand you have talent, but this weird, you're like 300 pounds, and you look like a crazy hippie. And these songs sound like weird church songs, smash songs from a play, slash, we don't understand how we could ever work this on radio. I mean, that's basically the conversation, right? Until they get in front of Todd Rundgren. Because if there's anybody who at this point is is developing the clout to just be like, whatever I want is what we'll do, um, it's Todd. And he says, cool, I get it. I'm going to produce the album. And I want to play guitar on it. And other members of Rundgren's band also lend their musical talent. So he basically, once they meet Todd, Todd's like, cool, gotcha. Here's my backing band. Here's me. We're going to get this done. Um, And then... They shop the record around, but they still can't get anybody to take it. So they've gotten it produced by a guy who's got some clout in the music industry, and they're still having trouble. Cleveland International Records finally decides to take a chance on it. And in October 77, it's finally released. So they start working on it in 72. They get serious about it in 74. It takes three years to get it to a point where somebody will take it. Meatloaf and Steinman form the band, the Neverland Express, to tour Bad of Hell. The first gig opening for Cheap Trick in Chicago. Nice. Uh, he also is a musical guest on SNL in 78. Yes.
1: I'm. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. Because I used to have the uh, first five years on uh, DVD. I remember that. Do you remember? I, 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 I will say this. I am 100% sure that I skipped over that musical guest. That's me. <laughs> Dead honest. <laughs> I'm, I think not my bag. I tried to watch ABBA. That was awful. Uh, good Lord.
0: Yeah. Anyway. good. Yeah. So after this, there becomes this really interesting, um, kind of, you know, can like "Bat Out of Hell" becomes a huge hit. It sold forty three million copies globally. Fifteen million of those in the United States. And this oh is a, this is an wow. important point we haven't really talked about. The reason Meatloaf actually gets huge is he does it outside of the United States first. Sounds like it. Wow. So, I mean, he has he has become the presence he is mostly for non American sales. So, like like that number, fifteen million of those in the United States, but forty three million total. So he's huge in Europe. And he can still go over to a lot of other countries and play big shows and do all these songs because he was such a big deal um, in the United Kingdom and in other places throughout the globe. So Australia, huge. He actually knocks the Bee Gees off the number one spot in Australia. Um,
1: Whoa, that's a huge deal.
0: Yeah, he's he's much bigger in other countries. Um, And then there starts to be this, can we make this happen again? And there's, and this is where there's creative friction between him and Steinman. Steinman tries tries to do some singing on an album. At one point, like Meatloaf hasn't like been. I mean, he's not a classically trained musician by any stretch, right? And so at different points, he starts like he loses his voice. And so there's this. They start to do the follow up to Bat Out of Hell. And yeah, Bat Out of
1: Hell too. I remember,
0: he's done so many drugs and he's so exhausted that he can't sing. And so the record company's pissed and (laughs) Steinman says, okay, fine. I'll sing. So he tries to sing on this second record um, and write this new album. And it, it, everything is, it just, it never, it doesn't do what bad out of hell did. They don't re they don't get back to that point for another Almost fifteen years until you get into the mid nineties, back to my exposure to meatloaf in my bedroom as a ten year old, being like, Why what am I hearing on the radio right now? And why in this video is this guy dressed like a part the elephant animal? Man. Yeah, the yeah. elephant man. There you go.
1: Yeah, that's who he <laughs> is. Yeah.
0: And, and and also around this time, you know, bad out of Hill was such a big deal and it obviously Meatloaf was so dramatic, and he had had this uh, time in the theater. He starts doing movies, and so I, you know, we can't end this episode without talking about the real reason you and I probably love Meatloaf beyond his music. I'm going to let it's you this, say what that is.
1: It's the his support group role in Fight Club. Of it, it really is cancer men with cancer men with the cancer survivor men the, those guys.
0: I mean, he's that was amazing. What, it, it,
1: yeah, remember, remember when? Oh, uh, who, who is it that tells him? If you want to see pain, go to this meeting. Like someone tells tells uh, Edward Norton that.
0: Yeah.
2: If
1: you want to go see pain, you go you go to this meeting, and that's where Meatloaf is. Yeah, and it's yeah. some. He's such a. An, he's an amazing. Uh, his performance in that movie is so fantastic. And then he joins the Fight Club.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he, and he's always done things like this. So to just put a bow on it, I, to to answer Tom's question, thanks for writing the show, Tom. We appreciate it. I hope we've done this question justice. My opinion is, Meet what what Fight Club was to Meatloaf in the late '90s. Uh, taking a role like that and, and getting in the heads of a whole new generation of people is what Ghost Hunters and all these ghost stories is to him for the last ten or twelve years. It's it, it's another play to stay relevant, you know. And I, there is a I've always said one of my favorite uh, celebrities I've ever met is Brett Michaels because Brett Michaels knew knows exactly who he is he's not trying to be somebody else i'm not sure that's the case with with meatloaf i'm not sure he knows who he is but i do appreciate the fact that meatloaf is he'll make a buck and if, if it means chasing the ghost hunters into a haunted mansion he'll do it so there you go hats off meatloaf and um brian this was an
1: excellent episode uh especially because uh Like they say at the end of South Park, I learned something today, and I didn't know anything about how to appreciate meatloaf, uh, and I haven't before, and so this gives me a, a a definitely a different perspective about how I'm going to think about him when I hear that terrible song on the radio if that ever happens again.
0: <laughs> here's, here's how I want to end this episode. First, I want to say that if you have a, uh, something that you want us to investigate for you, or if you want to comment, if you know a lot about meatloaf and I screwed something up, please, by all means, uh, hit us up and let us know that is, uh, we're pretty easy to reach over at uh, we are the story at gmail.com. And then I want to tell you one little tidbit that I, that I left out in the early eighties. As I said, there were a lot of legal battles we're not going to get into, but Jim Jim Steinman and Meatloaf fought a lot. And at one point, they were not on good terms. And Jim Steinman had some songs, because he was, you asked me earlier, who wrote the songs? A lot of them were Jim or other songwriters um, that they hired. It wasn't Meat. Meat was the performer. And Jim had a bevy of songs that he was going to give to Meatloaf. And they got in a fight, and so Jim sold them. And one of those songs was Making Love Out of Nothing at All by Air Supply? He, he,
1: he, wait, really? Jim, yeah.
0: Jim wrote that? Jim wrote that and it was going to be a Meatloaf song. And you know what else was going to be a Meatloaf song that Jim sold? Oh, I love this
1: Air Supply song. What's the other one?
0: The other one is this.
2: No! What?
0: Yeah, now imagine Meatloaf singing this song.
2: Turn
0: Every now and then I get a little bit lonely. I can't believe Jim Spenum wrote this. Around. Turn around. There you go. Enjoy. Uh, until next time, tell them what to do, Mark.
1: Listening to the sound of my tears. Turn,
0: turn around. No, keep telling <laughs> stories, everybody. nervous
2: that the best of all the years have gone by. Every now and then I get a little bit terrified. And then I see the look in your eyes.